Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. The conflict in Syria has entered a new phase. ISIS has been defeated, yet in many ways the war is metastasizing. In places like eastern Ghouta, which is on the outskirts of Damascus, the war is as brutal as ever. After days of extremely heavy bombing, the UN Secretary General called Ghouta, quote, hell on earth. Meanwhile, another part of Syria, in the northern town of Afrin, you have a situation where the U.S.-backed Kurdish forces that were so instrumental in defeating ISIS are now under attack by America's NATO ally, Turkey. Meanwhile, in recent weeks, an Israeli fighter jet was downed over the country, and the United States reportedly killed dozens of Russian mercenaries in a bombing. On the line with me to help put what is happening in Syria in the broader context of the trajectory of this nearly seven-year-old war is Raid Jarar, who is the Advocacy Director for the Middle East and North Africa for Amnesty International USA. We kick off discussing the situation in Ghouta, which is setting off all sorts of international alarm bells as an ongoing mass atrocity event. And then we discuss some of the broader trends of the conflict and what advocacy organizations like Amnesty are doing to keep the pressure on the international community to reduce the toll this conflict is taking on civilian populations. Overall, this conversation serves as a helpful explanation of how the Syria conflict has evolved over the last several months and where it may be headed. This is obviously a very timely conversation. The situation in Ghouta is as dire as any in the history of the, the civil war. The Security Council is debating whether or not to hold an emergency meeting on it as I speak. Uh, but this conversation, as I said earlier, does help put that potential emergency meeting in, in some useful broader context. As always, if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics you'd like me to cover, please send me an email. You can do so using the contact form on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And please do let me know what is on your mind. I really do appreciate hearing from you. Now, here is my conversation with Raid Gerard of Amnesty International USA. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Eastern Ghouta is significant for many reasons. Uh, it's very close to Damascus, the Syrian capital. Uh, many people consider uh, Ghouta to be the food basket of Damascus, uh, and uh, it's been a stronghold of opposition groups. 
So despite multiple attacks by the Syrian government and its allies, uh, they have not been able to take control uh, over uh, eastern Ghouta uh, in the last few years. So it has turned into a symbol of um, brutality and attacks and war crimes uh, over a period of time. Um, one of the most important things that Eastern Ghouta has uh, symbolized in the last few months uh, is the siege. Uh, 90% of people who are under siege in Syria uh, happen to live in Eastern Ghouta. Uh, so the 400,000 residents of Eastern Ghouta have been under a brutal siege by the Syrian government uh, and their allies. Uh, and the siege is unfortunately uh, a part of what appears to be a pattern that the Syrian government has uh, used multiple times in the last couple of years uh, for uh, taking control of civilian areas. I so guess what's, a, well, what's, what's yes, interesting sorry. to me, uh, two things. One is that, as you mentioned, it is like so close to Damascus, yet it is also like one of the last strongholds of, of opposition to the government, you know, whereas they have been able to use that tactic of, of you know, siege and then bombing and in other places to brutal uh, effect. It hasn't worked yet in, in, in Ghouta. They actually, Ghouta has been uh, a, a symbol of, uh, you know, standing uh, up against the Syrian government, but also against ISIS. Uh, it's one of the very few areas that... Uh, uh, ISIS did not manage to interfe infiltrate or uh, take control of. Uh, so they managed to fend off uh, many groups uh, from going there. You know, ironically, one of the uh, allegations now by the Syrian government and uh, Russia and other backers of the Syrian government um, is that uh, there are, um, you know, so-called terrorist groups uh, in uh, Ghouta uh, the Syrian government has been claiming that um, Al-Qaeda uh, has been operating in Ghouta. Uh, I think most of the news reports um, and analysis indicate uh, the, that this is not accurate. It seems like the two factions uh, that control Ghouta are Jaysh al-Islam and uh, Faylaq al-Rahman. Uh, and um, they don't have uh, direct connections with Al-Qaeda or ISIS. So, uh, yeah, it's one of these ironies, I think, that uh, the fact that they have um, uh, success successfully prevented ISIS and Al-Qaeda from going there uh, has uh, been one of the, their talking points, the armed opposition groups there. But the Syrian government still claims that there are terrorists there and they claim that the attacks now and all of the war crimes that have been committed uh, are being committed uh, to get rid of uh, a few terrorist organizations that no one can actually confirm that they exist in these cities. Uh, and yet there seems to have been over the last few days a sharp increase in the sort of airstrikes and, and other government attacks against uh, Ghouta. Can you, I guess, describe what's happening now to the best of your knowledge in, in eastern Ghouta and why now have these airstrikes increased with such in intensity? But there is a, a definite increase in the last month. Um, now, news reports in the last couple of days uh, have indicated uh, that almost 100 civilians have been uh, killed every day. Uh, Amnesty International can confirm that uh, over the last month, 
there are a couple hundred civilians that were killed. Uh, there are thousands, almost 3,000 civilians who have been injured because of these attacks that appear to be indiscriminate, uh, and many of them might uh, might amount to uh, war crimes. Um, now, the question of why this is going on and why Eastern Ghouta, um, unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, it seems like this is only one more example of a pattern of how the Syrian government and their allies have been operating in the last couple of years. Uh, Amnesty International just released a, a report uh, recently, and our report uh, describes uh, the the very um, details of this uh, killing machine uh, uh, that has been displacing civilians in Syria. So uh, the killing machine starts with a siege, uh, like we saw in eastern Ghouta, uh, and then uh, it uh, we see an increased attacks, uh, huge attacks against the civilian populations, very intense bombardment campaigns. And then after that, the populations are pressured to sign uh, to sign so-called reconciliation agreements uh, that usually result in massive displacement of civilians outside of these areas. And the fourth step is the so-called reconstruction that the Syrian government has been talking about. So we saw a few cases of this happening in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, our report. Um, uh, our report's title is We Either Leave or Die. Uh, reports four instances where that uh, happened. You know, Of course, we all know about uh, what happened in Aleppo. Uh, there are a few other instances uh, that this pattern was followed. So unfortunately, Eastern Ghouta seems to be yet another example of this pattern of siege to, st- to get people to a point of almost starvation and then intense bo- bombardment followed by a so-called reconciliation agreement that actually is meant to move people out. And then after that, they start speaking about the reconstruction. And, and it's happening now. Obviously, it's, it's one of the last strongholds, though, too, right? I mean, Aleppo has fallen. Other places have fallen. And now Ghouta just seems to be the last, the last place where this pattern can manifest itself again. Yeah, is that right? Unfortunately, not because the the and one of the our biggest fears um, is uh, what's going on in Idlib um, because Idlib has uh, somewhere between two and three times the population of all of the cities in eastern Ghouta, uh, and uh, Idlib might uh, be on this uh, list uh, too. So there are other places that uh, Amnesty International and other organizations are watching very closely. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, uh, in- intensified fighting, attempts to create uh, uh, more intense sieges around Idlib. Um, we we even uh, witnessed and confirmed uh, chlorine attacks uh, on on Idlib. Um, so so we're watching that very closely. We're also watching other other areas uh, in Syria that uh, might also be subjected to this uh, kind of treatment. And, you know, it seems one element of this pattern that you describe is international pressure and international outrage. Um, you know, you have calls right now at the UN for a, a 30-day ceasefire. At least, you know, in, in Aleppo, you had a, a small ceasefire agreement that was worked out that, like, the UN helped um, usher people out of um, Aleppo uh, right at the very end. 
I guess what role do you see the international community playing in sort of the situation as it's happening now in in Idlib? I mean, pardon me, in in Ghouta. I mean, it seems that um, you know because of of Russia's um, support for the Syrian government, there does not seem to be the prospect of like a an imposed ceasefire. Amnesty International has been calling on uh, the Syrian government and the Russian government and other backers uh, of the Syrian government uh, to immediately uh, uh, suspend any attacks uh, on civilians, including uh, Eastern Ghouta. So today uh, we issued an urgent action uh, to our our members around the world, um, uh, encouraging them to contact the Syrian government and the Russian government and demand two things. The first one is an immediate suspension of attacks, bombardments, bombing, airstrikes, um, other kinds of attacks uh, that have been killing civilians. And the second one is um, allowing uh, uh, humanitarian aid uh, access and those who need to leave for medical evacuations to also leave. So the first one is about the attacks. The second one is about the siege. And the siege works both ways. Uh, the siege doesn't let food and medica- medications go in, but it also prevents people from going out. Uh, many of these people have been dying. Many Syrians have died because of uh, the, 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 uh, the blockade uh, that is preventing them from leaving these areas uh, to get medical attention or uh, other uh, needs. Uh, so so we, are, we are having these very strong asks uh, here in, in the U.S., in Europe, in, in, other, in other places around the world. We're, we're trying to pressure all governments to step up and stop uh, what seems to be a bloodshed that is happening on a daily basis in, in eastern Ghouta and other parts of Syria. Now, unfortunately, I don't think that there is response coming uh, from many of these governments, including the Russian uh, and Syrian governments. So uh, another um, troubling, disturbing aspect of the Syrian conflict is what's going on in, in Afrin right now. And and this is another site of, of conflict, but I think it's also almost a microcosm of how, mm-hmm. frankly, um, messed up the international community's relationship to this conflict is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have right now the the Turkish government fighting mm-hmm. what were pro-American Kurdish uh, militias that helped to oust ISIS in mm-hmm. the city of Afrin. Meanwhile, there were news reports just the other day that pro-regime, uh, pro-Syrian regime uh, militias were en route to Afrin to support mm-hmm. their pro-American Kurdish group there <laughs> fighting the you know NATO ally Turkey mm-hmm. and can you I just distill from like a sort of number one what's what's happening right now in, in Africa <laughs> and how it fits into the broader narrative of the the Syria conflict uh, the broader narrative of the Syria, Syria conflict that there is a huge mess and civilians are paying a heavy price. That is the broader narrative. Uh, so it is a mess in Afrin and in Azaz. These are the two towns where uh, most of the effect uh, because of the uh, most recent Turkish incursion and uh, military operations, uh, they're affecting people in Afrin and Azaz. Uh, Amnesty International can confirm that, that hundreds of um, people have been killed in Afrin, uh, dozens have been killed in Azaz, uh, as a result to these um, military operations. Um, now, the, the the issue there is, is really complicated because you have 
Turkey um, fighting on the one side and on on one side and on the other side, it seems like the U.S. and Russia and the Syrian government and their militias um, are fighting on one side there. So it's it's a confusing situation to uh, general audiences who would think that uh, what's going on in Syria might be a proxy war where the U.S. is always taking the side of the Syrian opposition. Um, in that case, in Afrin, it doesn't seem like that is the case. The U.S. is taking um, the other side, uh, and it's very, very confusing to everyone uh, what's going on there. Um, I don't think there is a comprehensive or coherent U.S. policy uh, in the Middle East at large or in Syria in particular. Uh, but when you look at the U.S. actions in, uh, and around Afrin, uh, I think it really exposes uh, the lack of a comprehensive policy. It seems like there are decisions made uh, on a case-by-case scenario, and some enemies m- might be allies, uh, you know, a few miles away <laughs> from other uh, uh, operations that are going on. Uh, so we see like the operations uh, a little bit to the south uh, of Afrin. Uh, the U.S. is uh, definitely not on the same side as uh, the uh, American, uh, as the Russian or Syrian forces. Uh, and the, the U.S. seems to be funding and training and at least taking the political side of other groups. So it's a mess. It's a huge mess. You know, I honestly don't think that there is a, a, like a, a, a real interest in understanding that much of the mess more than understanding how to stop it. I mean, the question is, how can we stop the bloodshed there are thousands and thousands of Syrians who are getting killed and injured and displaced every month. Uh, and regardless of who's attacking and who's being blamed for it, I think there are questions about how can we stop this bloodshed as soon as possible. Well, you know, it, it does seem, though, that that the conflict in Syria over the last you know couple of months has entered a, a new phase with the, yes. um, you know, with the defeat of, of ISIS. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, I'm interested in learning from you what some of the possible scenarios of the end game of, of this current phase may be. I mean, I, I know what you and, and what Amnesty would like wish would, would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you expect, uh, might happen? What are some scenarios that, or some contingencies, I should say, that perhaps Amnesty and, and other groups are, are planning for? Um- First, let me tell you, like, the the mess is much bigger than what we just described now. So just to give you a a couple examples of what happened in the last couple of months. Um, The Syrian government shot down an Israeli fighter jet uh, that was bombing Syria. It's the first time that this happened since the 1980s. And it's considered a big escalation. You know, Israel is threatening to um, have a direct attack on Syria or Iran even because of that incident. Uh, At the same time, a Russian jet fighter was shot down by what appears to be um, uh, a uh, shoulder-held anti-craft missile. Some claims are are that the missile was made in the U.S. um, that shot that Sohoi-25 Russian fighter jet. Uh, there are escalations inside Syria. Um, you know, there are uh, there is a one U.S. attack uh, that took place a couple weeks ago uh, in the eastern part of Syria, 
that killed a, a large number of mercenaries and militias affiliated with the Syrian government. I read news articles that claims that up to um, dozens of Russian mercenaries were killed in that attack. Imagine this place. We're talking about a country where Israeli and Russian jet fighters are being downed and hundreds of um, Russian mercenaries are being killed by the U.S. You know, like these are unbelievable escalations that are happening within a few days. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that any of these made it to headlines uh, because there is a fatigue uh, when it comes to hearing what's going on in Syria. Now, to answer your question, what could be, what could happen and what should happen? What should happen is that an immediate uh, suspension of any transfer of weapons should happen. And this is something that Amnesty and many other organizations have been calling for. Uh, Russia and Iran and the U.S. and uh, Britain should stop transferring weapons to any party of conflict in Syria because that's not helping the situation. You know, these weapons are used to, uh, to commit violations on all sides, whether it's the side of the armed opposition or whether it's the side of ISIS or whether it's the side of some of the Kurdish forces now or whether it's the side of the Syrian government and its allies. So I think that is an, a very solid first step that can happen. Uh, there are many other calls for, um, you know, systems of de-escalation that Amnesty International does not comment on uh, per se. But I think everyone is very invested in getting to a point where there will be an immediate suspension of the military operations, uh, because I don't think uh, continuing the military operations will lead to uh, creating peace in Syria. Can I ask... Um... As, as someone who is engaged in advocacy on this issue, I mean, how are you battling the, the fatigue that you just described uh, among people uh, trying to absorb the, the shock of the daily outrages? Um, you know, we're, we're speaking, you know, about, what, a month before the seventh anniversary of the mm -hmm. outbreak of, of the Civil War? Mm -hmm. How do you deal with, how do you manage, how do you, how do you sort of fight that, that fatigue? I have to say it's not easy and it's not isolated to Syria. So there is fatigue in dealing with human rights abuses all around the world, all around the Middle East. Uh, I think one of the prevailing narratives that, to be honest, many of the governments try to uh, push these narrative, uh, narratives uh, so that people will get more skeptical is that there is nothing to do. You know, we talk about Israel and Palestine. You know, the occupied Palestinian territories and Israel and violations that happened there. And many people are, have washed their hands. They're like, there's nothing that can be done there. We talk about, uh, you know, the war in Yemen that has been going on for three years now. People are so tired and sick of violations that are happening, whether it's wars, whether it's oppression by the Egyptian government, whether it's attacks by the Syrian and Iraqi governments. Now, the way that I have been working on this with Amnesty International is to always get, give uh, achievable asks that we can call for, you know, like, for example, in cases like in Saudi Arabia, we've been calling for a suspension of U.S. military sales to Saudi Arabia. Now, Saudi Arabia is using U.S. weapons to kill civilians and s stopping our weapons will actually you know, contribute to stopping killing civilians. In the cases of Syria, uh, these are the calls that we're, we're trying to come up with a well, few uh, solid demands, like suspension of any 
additional transfer of weapon to armed groups or to the civilian government, like trying to um, expose the crimes that are being committed and call for accountability, uh, like creating public pressure to show what's going on in Eastern Ghouta and then uh, ask people to take action by contacting the Syrian and Russian governments to uh, pressure them to stop these daily murders. So, so we try to, to, to build this public pressure and public movement uh, to give people something to say and something to do. So, so your achievable what you asks right now um, for for Syria are are what? Because you know, just it seems to me like calling on the Syrian government, having people call the Syrian government or the Russian government to tell them to stop their aggression, isn't like that achievable in in, in ask. Like, what what's a little more discreet that you're calling for that you're hoping yeah. to achieve? So, so, so many of these asks, uh, you, you know, like I think our asks for the U.S. government to stop the transfer of weapons or to other governments might be more achievable. Uh, our asks for the U.S. government to be more uh, engaged in the triple IM and the investigations of uh, to hold uh, war criminals and other uh, people who committed violations accountable is more achievable. But at the same time, I think um, naming names uh, and and uh, trying to shame uh, some of these governments who are responsible for the worst violations is still important. I think, uh, you know, creating the right public narrative, what's going on uh, about what's going on in Syria is also important. So it, it's a it's like an all of the above approach. Um, you know, we're trying our best to find these niches uh, where people can take action uh, and we will continue to do that. Uh, well, Rayid, thank you so much for your time. This was this was helpful. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, thank you to Rayid. Thank you all for listening. You know, Syria is somewhat slipping from the headlines, as Rayid uh, discussed and, and mentioned. But um, nonetheless, glad to bring you this conversation. As I say often, it's important to shine a spotlight on some of these stories that are unfortunately undercovered uh, and somewhat underappreciated. And I'm glad to be able to use the, the podcast to, to do that. I hope you found it useful. I, I know I did. We'll see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.